You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Thank you for joining us. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I, I don't know what day you're watching this. Maybe you're watching it years later, months later. Uh, you, you didn't watch it when it first came out or, or listened, but uh, you're here with us. So I appreciate that. We got a great guest today. Um, I worked with him in Sweet November. We had a kissing scene that uh, didn't make it, got cut. Um, you know, from Harry Potter, the Patriot, tons of stuff. We'll get into him. But uh, first, I got to ask Ryan, what the hell is going on with him today? Because he's a little out there. Yeah. No, I got a lot of a lot of stuff going on this week. And uh, that's it. Well, you know what? It's either you do too much and you're stressed. You do too little and you're stressed. You, the proverbial you. It's true. Or it's right in the middle. Maybe there's some porridge. The porridge of the middle. I think we're all missing a little bit of porridge in our lives. Guys, make some porridge. Just... Is that what, is that the right saying? Porridge. Porridge. Just say it. Say the word. Porridge. If you're driving right now, just say porridge. Porridge. It just sounds wrong. Porridge. Porridge. <laughs> uh, thanks again for every, uh, everyone for uh, listening to the podcast. For sticking with the podcast. Um, tell your friends. Let them know. Uh, subscribe if you haven't subscribed. If you're here for Jason Isaacs, love for you to stick around and, and learn something with us. I'm always learning stuff from the guests, and I think you will too. You could subscribe. Where Ryan? uh at youtube.com slash inside of you with michael rosenbaum for the youtube podcast or you can just follow on uh twitter at inside of you pod uh instagram facebook at inside of you podcast they're right here you can see them too so at or and you can email hello at inside of you podcast.com that's right if you have any questions we don't answer them right away we get to them quite infrequently (laughs) it's just i have so much going on and i don't have a lot of people helping me out with that so uh you know ryan's editing bryce is producing i'm doing the show and a bunch of other stuff and doing the patreon if you if you don't know what patreon is um i have a lot of patrons and they support the show in other ways and it's a big family and uh, join patreon.com slash inside of you patreon.com slash inside of you and uh i'll send you a message after you join it's a nice family but thank you for listening guys thanks for tuning in uh we've got some great guests and you know we've had some great guests zach levi coming back you think okay it's his third time who wants to listen to the third time but you know what it it he really opened up and i freaking loved it i loved him he was talking about the medications he's on he's he's pretty much telling the world that it's okay to be a little broken and you got to really do the work you got to do the work yeah hey guys if you're uh enjoying sometimes you hear the music playing that's my band uh sunspin we have a uh, album out right here. You see that? It's called Best Days. Sunspin is the band. Best Days is the album. And you can get it at sunspin.com along with awesome merch and all that jazz. And you can also get awesome Inside of You stuff and Lex Luthor autographs and all that shit at the Inside of You online store. We've got Smallville lunchboxes. We also have Sunspin lunchboxes that we sign. And so there's a lot of good stuff there. And uh, I just want to say thanks again for 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 listening and uh, tuning in. It's been you know a tough week. I'm I'm having problems waking up in the morning. Really? Uh, I just have a I have a tough time. Um, I wake up the same time around seven a.m. and then I make some coffee and I feed the dogs and I do my routine, but I just feel heavy in the face, just like ah, oh, just could fall asleep. And maybe it's the meds. I don't know. I, I take meds when I when I wake up. A small amount of meds uh, just for, you know, a little anxiety stuff and whatever. But, you know, but I do feel heavy. Maybe it just takes some people a couple hours to wake up. Is that possible? Because I never felt like this before, really. Usually I'm within an hour. Now it's like three hours. 
I think it, I think it having a something to do, having a purpose in the morning <laughs> as you suck down. Isn't that an, is that merch? Is that a merch? <laughs> this is, this is inside of you, sipper. <laughs> I am sipping down some decaf coffee. Maybe that's my problem, the decaf. You need the coffee. Yeah, my coffee's just hitting. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I'm, you know what I want to be on that hot wing show? Yeah, you should do that. But I, I think I would puss. I, I I would be the worst guest ever because after three, I'm I'm not good with hot stuff. Everybody says that. Everyone who's on that show says that. But they all they all make it. No, no, I would make this. You don't think? I think I would die probably by wing five. What's it called? Hot ones. Hot ones. But he gets huge guests. I'm not a big star like that. Who knows? We're gonna, man. Go, oh, we're gonna go from Will Ferrell doing hot wings to Michael Rosenbaum. It's gonna go from ten million views to like two hundred. But I'll make it funny because I'll freak out and I'll I'll probably fall off the chair. I'll probably scream. We could just do it here. You have your own platform. Why don't we do our own hot wings? Say, since he won't beat me on his show, Michael Rosenbaum decided to do his own hot stuff. Hot stuff? Hot ones. Hot ones yeah. with Ryan. Yeah. And we sat here for an episode and just ate hot wings. This is, you know, it might get a couple hundred views. Yeah. Anyway, I was going to talk more today, but I'm not going to. Let's get into this guest. This is, uh, you know, I, I've known this guy a long time. We did Sweet November together with, with Charlize Theron and, and Keanu Reeves. He's done tons of movies. He's an incredible actor. My mother never talks about my acting, but always talks about his. This is, uh, he's got some great stories, and I think you're going to really enjoy this. So um, let's get inside of Jason Isaacs. It's my point of view. Listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. <laughs> look at that. You look good. Thanks so much. I got a little, a little pro thing here. What do you think? It's not as big and fluffy as yours, obviously. Wait, what are we talking about? I haven't got one of those. What do you call the big, uh, the, the spongy thing? I haven't got one of those. Oh, you mean these little, uh, the condoms for the microphone? Yeah, I've got a little, I've got a pop shield so that all over the mic. Well, yeah. That's, spurt. that's because you do a lot of voiceovers and stuff, right? You got to have that little. Do some voiceovers. I've been doing, I not recently, not for money. I've been doing charity voiceovers and, and hosting charity galas and uh, charity appeals nonstop for the last six months. I feel so fucking guilty because people don't <laughs> have any money and people are terrified. But on the other hand, the charities have all run out of money completely. So, uh, yeah, I bought myself a bunch of equipment and then I've done a lot of charity work. You got to feel good about that, though. Come on. I do. I mean, I was encouraged to get it by my voiceover agent who said the work will come flooding in and it hasn't even trickled in. But, you know, uh, <laughs> mine is, ours is not a reason why. It's all fine. Voiceovers are actually, I think, harder to get than actual acting gigs. I mean, well, the- not in, uh, in England, in America. Yeah. So I, when I moved to the States, I, I was doing a lot of voiceovers in England and you just get booked. You just, they go, oh, we'd like you to do the voice of whatever the hell it is. And you turn up in the studio and you do it. So my agent goes, uh, I have a friend in America who's an American voiceover agent. I'll, you can get one there. And I went, yeah, sure. And I just figured I would just slide into doing it there. And it's a very different world. It really because is. I, I go in somewhere and I didn't quite understand the concept of an audition. It'd be 50 people. It was like being on the voice and narrow it down to 10 <laughs> and five and three people. Yeah. You don't get it. And you go, fuck this. I've been here all day. I'm not doing that anymore. So yeah. I started to do cartoons. I did a lot of cartoons, which well, I know you did, well, which I, I love, and video games. Yeah, and before, you know, we'll get into that, but, uh, you know, how we met, obviously. We met. Wait, oh, we're recording. We're on. Okay, fine. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I just, like, you yeah, know, okay. it's me. It's okay, just a, a candid conversation. Okay, so we should tell the three people listening 
uh, or watching. Oh, there, actually, there's actually millions of people. You're well, I wouldn't say millions. Which tell them how we met. All right, how do, hold on a second. You look exactly the same. My eyes no. are fading, but you look exactly no, I don't, the same. Hold on a second. I got an old bizarre. dog. He's barking. He never does this. He's old, yeah, though. It's control. He just hears a Jew and starts barking. Yeah, well trained. Here's a Jew? Yeah. Well, he hears two Jews talking, and it just upsets That's him. true. Two or two Jews. I never thought. I knew so, you were, on, how do we meet? Tell, tell us. Uh, how defamatory are we going to be? Do we want lawsuits here? Well, you know, it's funny because, all right, so we're not. No, I mean, we could say whatever we want. People, uh, people will like it, I hope. Um, so I, I auditioned for Sweet November, and I met with Pat O'Connor, who directed. He directed Circle of Friends. And I remember, uh, I didn't know this, but I auditioned for your role, and I didn't know that you were already their guy, but your, your schedule was conflicting. So sure. like you that were- was in the days when I had, I had a conflicted schedule. Well, I'm telling you, I, I remember, because I didn't even know I was <laughs> up against anybody. I mean, obviously, you're up against everybody. But uh, Pat O'Connor calls me, and he has a, you know, Michael, um, you know, uh, listen, you gave a great audition and, um, we're, you know, and that whole thing, you do it much better because you were nice. on a show where you. No, no, I was looking, I wouldn't even dare to do his Irish accent, but, but it was very, you almost it was did, very but then soft he backed off. And, and it was like floating. Um, no, I don't know what it was, but he said to me, he says, listen, you have a great audition and everything and you know, you're great for the role, but we have this actor that's on hold for the, that's why we were reading other actors. Cause right, he's, right. he's, if his schedule doesn't work, I'd like you to play this character. Shit, so I was I'm supposed so to play your. You must have hated me for decades now. No, I never did at all. But he said, "Listen, there's this other role. It doesn't seem as important, but it's his lover, and we'll do what we can, and we'll just make you feel like one. It's not a very big cast, and we want you to come play with us." And so I came to San Francisco. I met you. We went golfing. We had time to do things. We hung out with uh, Keanu and Charlize a little. And I remember we were. He Pat said, "Hey, why don't you guys just start improvising something on set?" So we well, started. Wait, let me just build back up to that. So when I, because I when I was offered the job, I, I didn't want to take it. I just done the Patriot, and I liked the idea of playing someone who suddenly surprises the audience by turning out to be a drag queen. But it just it didn't. I wasn't in love with the script. It wasn't. And he said to me, he phoned me up. He said, "Look, I, I, we have mutual friends. I know you like to improvise. You can't improvise most of it. Keanu's in the scenes with you. I, I don't think that'd be fair to him." But there will be a scene where I will let you completely off the leash. And I think I have a very good time. We've got a fantastic guy playing your boyfriend. I think, you know, it's really going to kick off. So I, I was very well behaved the rest of the film. I was so looking forward <laughs> to our scene together. You, no one, the audience doesn't know that I'm a dragon. The audience doesn't know I'm gay. Right. Keanu thinks that I'm a love rival for him. And he turns up at our front door. Uh, first of all, I had said, before we went out, I said to the production, listen, I'm playing a drag queen. I don't know any. Is, is there anywhere? Uh, can you think of anywhere or find somewhere I could go and research it? And they went, Honey, we're in San Francisco. <laughs> Throw a stone. <laughs> and so I went out to a bunch of drag bars. And it was quite shocking to me. You know, I, I, funny enough, I'd had a, a trans friend before, but I, I had never been around uh, transvestites, you know, and I just didn't know that drag wasn't about passing for a woman. And I went to these bars. I'm like, oh, these guys, some of them have mustaches. They look like Puerto Rican truck drivers in a frock. And I, so I, I, I was allowed off the hook. I didn't have to pass for a woman. Uh, but I was given carte blanche to dress in anything I wanted. So I went and picked this stuff and I bought fingernails and a wig and so and I looked in the mirror and I went, fuck me, that's exactly what my mom, my mother looked like in the oh. 60s when I was growing up. There's a picture. I mean, she was much, she was a very, very pretty woman, but I had approximated unconsciously my mother in the 60s. Anyway, but we get to the thing, it's you and I, we're gonna do a scene. And I just remember Pat going, Okay, you've been very good, well behaved. You've given Keanu his cues, or because he likes to have, you know, he's a different kind of actor, he likes his cues. Now, fuck him up. The character <laughs> was meant to said. come in the room. 
and not know what's going on and be really thrown, you and Michael fuck him up. And then we just, I don't know, you, you take it over. We, I had the best time. I, best the best ever. time. And I remember, do you remember he said, uh, I just had the sound guy record us. So go listen to what you did and kind of fuck around and see what you can come up with. So we improvised. Then we heard kind of what we did. And we go, we'll keep that. And then we'll add. And then we'll, it was just kind of light and fun. And I had so much fun. He rolled until the, this is back in the days of film. He rolled until the mags ran out and then rolled again. And rolled again. We were all having a good time. Yeah. And then he called me at some point, or I had to do ADR or something. He said, the scene is like 20 minutes long and it's everybody's favorite bit in the scene. I've got to cut it down to like two or three minutes because it's just, it's upending the whole thing. So, you know, there's a oh. lovely romantic film. Then there's a, just a genius comedy set piece. And then it's back to the romance. You're like, bring those guys back on again. So somewhere there is a 20 minute short film starring you and I doing stuff which we probably wouldn't be allowed to do today. Oh, it was, it was fun though. I had a great time and, uh, you know, working with you and I could see that kind of, uh, you know, that, that flicker in your eye, that sort of that, I don't know, you have that air about you, that energy that, you know, you're obviously super talented, but I could just a long time ago, but you just, (laughs) and by the way, I think you were probably just getting married right around then, weren't you? Uh, we were, no, no, we went, I went, when did we do it? We did 2000, right? Yeah, you were married in what, 2001? Yeah, two, no, 2001, no. Uh, yeah, maybe I did, I can't remember. No, 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 2001, <laughs> I went to Black Hawk Down, and uh, we were trying to get pregnant, and Ridley let me out of the last scene. It was incredibly nice of him, so I could go and see an IVF doctor in New York. So there's a scene in which I'm meant to be in, which I'm, I'm not in. Uh, and when we got pregnant, and then when we were pregnant, we were in L.A., it's just so unromantic. And uh, my <laughs> wife was sick, and uh, we didn't know whether to fly home or not. We phoned a doctor in the U.K., and he said, you should go to an emergency room. The thing she's got, you should go and check out for a blood clot. And I thought, well, we thought, fuck, we don't have any medical insurance. I've got SAG. She's got nothing. So we went to a registry office on Wilson Boulevard. We called two of our friends who came, and we all swore an oath of silence that we would never tell anyone we were married there because we wanted to have a proper wedding and invite friends and hoping they'd fly overseas and make a fuss and if they knew, you know. So when we came back to England. I didn't tell anyone. didn't tell my friends. didn't tell my family or anything. And we were at dinner a couple months later with this friend of ours, an actress, and she said, you know, since the two of you, got, you guys got married, and I said, we're not married. And she went, Jace, Emma told everyone. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. And she went, yeah, I could, sorry, I couldn't keep it in. So we never did do the proper wedding thing, but it was uh, it was like a year and a half after we were together. Wow. And you guys have been together for 20 years? Oh. 500 years, 30-something years. We're still trying to get one continuously good week. When we do, we'll, we'll assess the situation. See, I don't know how you do that, man. See, I'm I'm somewhat single, I guess, perpetually. And I just feel like, you know, I'm 48 years old. Could you imagine yourself alone? Could you imagine yourself not having Emma? Could- <laughs> <laughs> no, no, really. I thought you were going to say no. I, she's my glue. I can't really. Well, the truth is we're actors, right? I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up still. So... And I'm 10 years older, nine years older. So, yeah, I can imagine myself as a wizard. I can imagine myself on a spaceship. I can imagine, my, you know, this is my life. I mean, I, you know, Emma is my life. My kids are my life. This is my life. But I also want a hundred other lives. I want the life where I'm, you know, roaming around. I want to be David Carradine in Kung Fu. I want to be climbing mountains. And I want to be, a, you know, I want to, oh, there's a million things, uh, uh, lives that I'd like to live. I get to live, you know, barely a fraction of one of them. But at least vicariously, the most fun thing, I think the most fun thing about acting when it, in normal times is they get to shadow people and then for moments pretend I'm them sometimes. So I've, I've been lucky enough to shadow police and soldiers and prostitutes and pimps and 
politicians and many things that don't be given a pay, you know. So I, uh, and each time I think, oh, that could have been me. I wonder what my life would be like as that person. So yeah, I love Emma. This is who I am. This is where I'm anchored in the world. But I can imagine a million other lives. What would you do? And and the grass is often greener if you're not careful. The grass will always seem greener. Yes. What would you do though? I have a glass here. I don't know if you can see this. What is it? Certainly you won't see it on an audio podcast. It says pessimist and optimist. (laughs) But I wish someone had made a glass where you could just fill the top off and only have the pessimist half fill because I'm often that too. Yeah, I, I think we all are. Good, good God, I wish I'd get out of my head. But wait, head. so you're single. Have you had long relationships? Yeah, I mean, I've had <laughs> There we go. We're turning, we, this always happens, by the way. I'm they, dying to know. The I, guest I haven't becomes seen you the therapist. I adored you, you and I haven't seen you for 20 something no, years. I know. Uh, you know, I've had some, you know, three years. No, we saw each other once outside a club, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, club. Listen to a club. That's not a restaurant. A restaurant. Yeah, <laughs> you call them clubs in in England, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, I, I date. I've, I've had a three year relationship. I had a year relationship. But, you know, I just I see all the dysfunction around me, and I see the unhappiness around me. And then the few moments you see that, oh wow, that couple really works. Or you see my grandparents married for seventy two years, and you, it gives you hope. But then I think I had there was so much shit I went through, you know, growing up that you're like, I don't think I should get married. I don't I don't know. I don't know. It involves a ton of compromise. It it is. It is. Everything involves a ton of compromise. Being single does being in a relationship. Because I'm selfish. You could probably be selfish. You could be selfish. I'm extremely selfish. And uh, yeah, I see other couples. I remember there was this couple when I was at drama school. My friend Eric's parents They were both child psychologists. And they seemed so happy. My parents were not happy. I don't remember one moment of happiness growing up, seeing any any joy between them or you know from oh. each other. Um, and seeing this couple, they were incredibly happy. We all felt the same way, all, all of uh, Eric's friends. And we, I went and asked them separately. They were staying with us. We, we shared an apartment. And I asked them separately. I said, why, why, your marriage seems crazy happy. I've never seen anything like it in my life. What is it? And they both said separately, well, I just devote myself to his happiness or her happiness. Which at the time seemed great. Now I think that's the definition of codependency or whatever it is, something. But uh, whatever, it seemed to work for them. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, it's, you know, in the end, we born alone and we die alone. And these are the, this is the choice I made. I'm not a lever. Emma's not a lever. So we're in it for thick or thin. Is that a um, bad thing, though, Jason? Is it a bad thing to, because, you know, some people say, you know, have your own agenda, have your own happiness. But is there something to be said about meeting someone who really just loves being around you and wants to make you happy? I mean, that is codependency. I didn't meet that person. I, I think I, I met know. someone who is more healthy and more balanced than that. I, exactly. But, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, look, if a, you meet someone and they just love doing what you love to do and that's their fun, they just love being around you and doing the things that you like. And you're like, well, let's do something you like, but they don't really have much to offer or they never really ask to say, you know, they never suggest, oh, why don't we do this? They just yeah, yeah. go along with you. Will that get boring? I don't know. I guess I think so. I think it would be uh, very, very boring to be utterly dominant. <laughs> I'd like it for a week or two or even an hour for anybody to think that what I said was impressive or interesting. On the other hand, look, I'm an actor and I get, um, sometimes I get a, a monstrously, grotesquely undue amount of status from people socially. Uh, some Certainly, you know, from, from people who like the work or are fans and and the, a film set is a, a very rigid, almost, you know, ancient Egyptian hierarchy, and you get all that status too. Um, so if my wife was even microscopically impressed by me, it would probably be, you know, it, it would it would be <laughs> awful and damaging. So she's no interest in watching anything I do work-wise. Come on. read an interview. She, she won't listen to this podcast. No, she's not. She's the, the, the public performing side of me. She's, she's got 
not just well, wait. Not even vaguely interested. She doesn't come to a premiere with you. She didn't see the Patriots. Premier's different. Premier's Premier's different because you know it's it's it would be weird if she did. By the way, she doesn't come to all of them by any means, and uh, she doesn't. You know, I, I've just been doing a bunch of publicity the last couple of weeks. This is not, by the way, and you know, uh, as you know, I'm not on the publicity trail, but I was last week doing a, a bunch of junkety things for a film called Skyfire. This. Uh, Chinese volcano film. How is that? Was it fun? Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. But anyway, what I'm going to say is, <laughs> I was in the newspapers, there's magazines, on the radio stations, you know, uh, this shit that happens when a film comes out. <laughs> Emma has no idea. She didn't read any of the papers. She didn't listen to the interviews. She hasn't watched the film, which we've got, you know, a link to and stuff. And that's probably uh, incredibly healthy. Uh, but it doesn't feed my ever kind of grasping ego, my, my bottomless pit of need for for praise, but the, it's maybe why we're still married after 32 years. Does she say, you know, you're raising children, she's doing her half, you're doing your half. Every once in a while, do you ever hear, Jason, you were really great in that? Oh, in that, no. I, I mean, if I, if she comes down in the morning and I've cleaned the kitchen up and done the bins, yeah, if I decide <laughs> I'll do the school run, although I did it in the morning, yeah, the normal stuff of life, if I'm kind, if I praise her, if I, you know, if I... uh do something ah. that hasn't been asked for. If I cook dinner and whatever, just the normal things in life. If I'm, uh, she's impressed by. She's not impressed by those things I do professionally or how much command I have socially. And I think that's probably really healthy. Yes, I mean, it's really are, healthy. You know, didn't Gary Newman, the pop star, marry the president of his fan club? I'm not sure. Well, well you maybe are still incredibly happy, well, Gary, for listening to this. I apologize. But I'll tell you um, what, Jason Priestley married a fan of his, his wife, who's wonderful, and they've been married and have kids and are happy as ever. So it's rare. It does happen, but it's probably yeah. not, you know, you tried to separate that. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. The only thing is, so when you tell people you're married for 30-odd years and, you know, been together forever, they always think, oh, it's Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, and they have this perfect, I don't know anyone has got the perfect thing. I do know there's people I think from the outside, wow, if only we were like that, look at how great they are with each other. And then they break up where you find out that they've got a, you know, basement full of uh, limbless children or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> so we're no poster children for how to conduct ourselves or sort out problems or arguments. We do our best. We try to get better it. at it. Uh, there are times we're petulant and sulky and stupid. There's times we're loving and fabulous. And, you know, it is, it is, it's a marriage. It's, it's, you, I, remember, I remember meeting years and years ago. You get to edit this when I'm really fucking boring, right? You're not boring at all. This is what, this is oh, no, honestly. I'm, I'm about to be. But, <laughs> oh, well, then, anyway, yeah. Years ago, uh, I met um, Ed Zwick and uh, Marshall Hushkowitz, who did 30-something. I met Marshall, I think, in London. And he said to me, um, look, uh, uh, you know, we've seen you working. I don't know I do him what. Uh, but I was doing Harry Potter at the time, and I was in a gap. And they said, we, we used to make television. We did a thing called 30-something. I said, I no, I could recite every word of every episode. You know, they said, well, you must be young watching. I said, I don't know why. I must have been 18 or 19. I loved 30-something. I love the fact you created uh, Tim Busfield's character, Elliot, who was selfish and petulant, spoiled and sulked and, and just felt like a real person. You know, uh, everybody wanted to be Ken Olin, Michael, but I wanted to be Tim Busfield or, or, because I'd never seen anyone like that before. Uh, he said, well, okay, well, I'm, I'm glad you know it because we're going to come back to television. Ed's been making these giant movies, uh, but we wanted to see, you know, we just don't know any people who've been killed and we don't know any aliens and we don't know people with superpowers. We want to make a TV show about the shit in our lives, about a marriage. Just, you know, about the ups and downs of a marriage and how to hold it together and what happens someone gets cancer and your kids growing up. And that should be enough drama. That's the drama that most people experience. And I went, oh, that sounds amazing. And anyway, I couldn't do it because of the schedule or something. And uh, they made it. And I saw Edswick in the park years later when I was living in Los Angeles, walking a dog, and I said, Edswick. I said, yeah. And I said, oh, it's Jason. I remember years ago, I nearly did that pilot with you. 
Uh, I said, how did it go? Uh, you know, you wanted to see whether you could make a drama out of just the simple things in life. He went, yeah, you can't. <laughs> I went, oh, okay. He said, yeah, there's got to be a murder or homicide oh, or a joke. Oh, my gosh. Know, uh, some kind of other thing going on. It's not enough to have ordinary life. Wow. Marriage, don't be envious of it. Be who you are and find your places where you take them. I think it must be difficult to be 48 and be prepared to make the amount of compromises that it takes to be. You know, Emma and I have been together so long, it will be to consider not being together will be seismic. But when you meet a new person, you start dating. Yeah. They better be perfect. You know what? They, they better feel like that jigsaw better fit perfect. They're just, so they're, but give up. I think it's just, it has to just be easy. Like it can't, there just can't yeah, be yeah. drama. There can't be like real sensitive about things you say. I mean, look, you argue, you have things, but it just can't be combative. I can't be in a combative relationship. I never really have. There was one but I, I just don't want to argue. I don't want to like, you know, in relationships and either this one with them or, or you know, uh, my friends, I see in new ones that when something is going wrong or isn't going great, you think, well, that's because they fill in the blank, whatever it is. Right. Because they're not... too crazy or they OCD or they brought up my mom. And, and the trick, and I don't have it. I'm not, I, I'm absolutely talking the talk that I can't walk here. The trick is to go, what did I do? You know, what's my bit? What can I change? Uh, and it, but it's always they. Yeah, I found that's, that that's a good line. Go. My relationship Yoda advice there. Inside of You is brought to you by Rocket Money. I love Rocket Money. You know why? Because everyone should have Rocket Money because it just helps you save money. How many times do we have subscriptions that we don't even know we have anymore and we're paying so much money? It's just throwing away money, Ryan. I, I found one. You And you did it. You told I me. Found- I got Rocket Money. <laughs> Okay, I found one. It. I'm embarrassed to say how long it's been going on, but thank you for finding it. <laughs> My God, it was embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, because it's like you want to watch some show and you go, oh, I have to subscribe to this uh, this streaming, dev- uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you, you start streaming the show, you watch it, you leave, and you forget after this trial period, it kicks in and it's they're charging terrible. you 10 bucks a month. It's, it is embarrassing. Ugh. You know, 75% of people have subscriptions they've forgotten about. Before I started using Rocket Money, I thought I had, you know, like, oh, I have like five subscriptions. I could not believe it when they showed me I was paying for like four extra uh, between, you know, streaming advices and fitness apps, delivery services. It's never ending. And thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lowering your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with the customer service for you. And I like that. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash inside. That's rocketmoney.com slash inside. Rocketmoney.com slash inside. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know how many times I have to talk about this, but it's so important. If you're sitting there right now and you're stressed or you're anxious or you have a lot on your mind and you just bottle it up and you don't know what to do, it's going to come out and it's not going to come out in great ways all the time. Um, BetterHelp has helped me substantially. Ryan here, 
have been using it for a while. And I, you know, don't you notice when you don't use BetterHelp when you don't have therapy? Oh, the weeks where I miss a session, of course, yeah, yeah. It's just it's 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 like the more you talk about something, even if you don't think you have anything to talk about, things come up, and it puts your mind at ease. And we all carry around different stressors, you know, big and small. And at times we keep carrying them around rather than processing them and letting them go. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy from BetterHelp is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for all of us. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. I think people think, oh, what if I don't like my therapist? If you don't, you switch them. It's that easy. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com inside today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash inside. Listen, you were talking about, I mean, like 15 minutes ago, you said something about, you know, when we we're doing Sweet November and that scene got cut down to two minutes, it was 20 minutes. Have there been roles where you're like, when you watch, you're like, what the fuck? What happened to that shit? Have there been moments where you're like, oh, it was so great and it's gone and no one told you? Yeah, yeah. Always. I mean, it's not even just the... Uh... Moment. Well, first of all, when I did Harry Potter, which I loved doing, and I loved the people who made it, was it was nothing but an unending pleasure. I stopped reading the books because there were fabulous bits in the books that, of course, didn't make it to the screenplay because otherwise the films would have been nine hundred hours long. Um, but but not in those films, but in other things, you know, as you know, as an actor, part of what you do is you you're shaping a story, like when you're telling a joke. You're kind of you're gauging, calibrating in order for the right bits to come at the right time in the right way, and then you see it. And the middle's been put at the end, and the end is at the beginning, and uh, you know, uh, or they they altered the timing so you can cut to someone else. You don't see the reaction. Really, if you want control over your performance, uh, you've got to be on stage because uh, it's it's a director and an editor's medium, uh, and it's very rare, unless you do a single take somewhere, that the performance is ever going to be the performance that you felt that you gave. And then there's the other thing, which is to give a really good performance, you shouldn't really be aware of anything you're doing. You kind of lose yourself in it. I mean, you still know where the mark is, and you're not really punching someone. Or, or you're, but, but you also shouldn't really be uh, editing your head or, or aware of it. So when you watch it back, it could be a surprise and not what you thought you were doing, or not what it looks like. You know? Do you? So do I don't know. I mean, I, I try not to think about acting anymore. You know, I, I, that awful thing that happens when you get on a set and there's some young actor and they've completely prepared their performance, and, and it's it's fabulous, an exquisite piece of self sculpture. And you could just drop your pants and take a shit on their head and it would not alter one beat. <laughs> you know, the set could be on fire. It does nothing. It could pull your nose off. And they're going to do that thing because they worked it out with their manager or their acting coach. I've worked with people who have an acting coach on set. And I try to do no preparation whatsoever. I know the story, you know, and I trust myself to be in the moment. I hope that they're going to be alive in the moment. And whatever happens, happens. You know? uh, and so um, same with the edit. You just have to let go of it. You know, our experience, our... The pleasure we should get should be just the release of doing it. You know, the release of dancing, singing, you know, uh, acting, sh painting should be the doing of it and then just let go. And if I could, I would never watch any of it. And I wouldn't care if no one ever saw any of it. But as long as I kept getting the opportunity to do it again. Really? So you sincerely 
just doing it for you is the pleasure. You don't need to see it. I've been with you on a set. Look, it's I, I don't know how to apportion the pie, but like part of the pleasure is we get to be part of this community, this little village that comes together. It's a group of friends. It's not like a normal working environment. You, you have, it feels like you're hanging out. We are doing the most childish job on the set, childlike job True. on the set. So, you know, it doesn't feel responsible. We're not, you know, transplanting organs here or anything. And uh, we need to keep ourselves loose and having fun and our emotions close to the surface. So laughing is close to tears. And so people are always kind of clowning around, enjoying themselves. It's very social. And then, and then there's the bit where you get to play like all humans would play if we were let completely off the leash. And like kids do play. We get to play pretend and feel feel what it's like to have another person's thoughts and needs and wants and, uh, and kind of unpick the human condition. And, yeah, and paint pictures with with uh, the building blocks of, uh, of emotional stuff. I had this, okay, this is going to sound like a non sequitur. It's not, I don't think. You know, the thing about good acting, bad acting, are people doing it well and us ju- judging ourselves? Are we doing it well? I had this seminal experience. I was at drama school and I was in the common room, the kind of hangout room with the jukebox and dot. I think I like bunked out of a lesson, whatever you call it, playing hooky. I was sitting there smoking a big joint. And in the doorway, right the other side of the room were these two people from the year above the graduating year and they were rehearsing some scene like a really dramatic like acting shouting arguing crying scene it was just fucking horrible the guy god bless him was a terrible actor he should have been told within a day of arriving at drama school listen we made a terrible mistake you know <laughs> we got your name down we'd be confused with someone else you're never going to be an actor you don't have the thing whatever it is it doesn't say anything about you as a human being you just can't say your own name and sound convincing it's not going to happen and I was watching him do this waving of his arms and shouting and stupid things, his voice. I was thinking, it's just cruel pushing him out of the world. She was pretty good, but it was he was awful. Anyway, it was ruining <laughs> the joint, and I was harshing my buzz. So I thought, I've got to get out. And I got up and I walked past him to leave the room. And I realized they were having a real argument. And they were crying and shouting and screaming at each other, best friends having a falling out. And it was a revelation to me because that is as good acting as anybody will ever do, i.e., he was 100% emotional and present. I just didn't particularly like the way he looked or sounded. Something about him felt artificial to me. <laughs> right. So when I watch myself on screen or other people, it doesn't matter what I think of what's going on. I might think that person's interesting or true, and some next person, person next to me thinks that's ridiculous and fake. So I'm no judge of what other people will think of me anyway. All I can do, all I can control is in the moment, am I feeling it? Am I honestly trying to change the other character's mind? Am I trying to make them love me or hate me? Me assessing later on whether I think I've done it well and what reviewers think of it is so out of my control. There's no point thinking about it. It's hard, though, especially in the beginning. I think that yeah, takes it's maturity. A, it's a nightmare. Because in the beginning, you want the uh, awareness. You want the, you know, the, the articles written about, oh, hey, he was great in this and he did this. It still feels good. But should you be getting sort of enveloped in it? Bad ones. You get the good stuff. It's, yeah, it's great. And you get addicted to it. You get the bad ones, it really uh, sucks. It kind of breaks uh, your I don't heart. have the courage uh, or strength of character not to look at them. Um, I've generally had pretty good ones, uh, but it doesn't make the slightest bit of difference. I can read, and now online social media, there's a billion reviews of things. I can read hours and hours of good stuff, and one person goes, that accent sucked, and I just walk around crushed by it, you know. So I, sh- I should look. My friend Lenny James. You know the actor Lenny James who's in uh, Fear the Walking Dead? He was in Walking Dead. Yeah. Um, doesn't read reviews. Doesn't read them, doesn't look at them, not interested. Do you believe he's absolutely him? Do you believe he's him? Healthy. You believe that? I do. He's, he's like my brother. I love him. I trust him. Fuck, if he lied to me, I'd be horrified. <laughs> I don't think he does. Um, but so, yeah, I, I had this early lesson about reviews. 
I, I was a student, not even a drama student, yeah, I was a law student. And um, we'd taken a play to the Edinburgh Festival, which is this giant arts festival in, in Scotland. Thousands of things go on. You can't get reviewed because there's thousands of things, but you don't get an audience without review, so it's a nightmare. And back in the day when I did it and I was young, there were only two things that reviewed you. There was two newspapers, one broadsheet and one tabloid. So we open at lunchtime. It's this play, you know, there's a lot of nudity and swearing. We thought it was brilliant. We're students, a lot, you know, a lot, of, like, a lot of sex and all this stuff. And at midnight, the broadsheet newspaper came out. And that first day, we had five people in the audience. We had six on stage, five in the audience. And uh, <laughs> at midnight, we're at this party where all the performers used to go, and they would come in and dump the newspapers at midnight. Everyone would descend like vultures, rip it to pieces, see if they got a review. But they're only reviewing like 10 shows a day in the thousands. So, you know, we wrote, fuck me, we got a review. First day, five people in the audience, we get a review, and it says, this is the worst piece of shit I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> These people should be shot. They're what gives student drama a bad name. Avoid it like the plague. So oh, we all, like, wow. we got the rest of the summer doing the show. And we walk up onto this mountain in the middle of Edinburgh called Arthur's Seat. We take some tequila, probably some things that were illegal at the time. And we sit up on the mountain just so depressed. We come down at five o'clock in the morning. And outside, uh, a news agent, what of course, you know, a candy shop, is um, piles of the tabloid newspaper. The shop's not open yet, so they're just sitting there on the, on the street. <sighs> we grab one, we, we steal it, we open it. And unbelievably, we'd been reviewed in that too, which means two of the five people in the audience were reviewers. And it went, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Electrifying theatre, pulls no punches. Go and line up around the block with the rest of us to watch these stars of tomorrow. And we got both reviews. We put them on a poster. We fly posted all over the town. We went, these two people saw the same show. Make your own mind up. We sold out. But it was an early lesson that none of it means shit. None of it. It's somebody's wow. opinion. They want to look clever. They've come up with a good pun, a bit of alliteration. They don't care about you and the work you've done. They just care about reading their column, you know. So you shouldn't look oh, at it. That's I mean, out. You have great stories. Yeah, Are you I've been an actor, the same Jason? For, for 30 years. You know, well, here's a review for you. My mother. Yeah. <laughs> I say, what was that show you loved with Jason Isaacs? Brotherhood. He is my favorite. He played a real badass, Michael Caffey. Get it now on Hulu. I've never heard my mom oh, go she's going on full into like and on. Really good show, not known enough, ended too soon. And I'm like, all right, shut up. I just wanted to know what the fuck is the story of all was. my television series. Not known enough, Me ended too. too soon. Except one, but yeah, two years here. What, one year you, here. what do you mean? You ran for, what have you been on 25 years you're playing lately? Like, no, seven, seven years. I left after seven. Seven is a lot. But I've but, never but, gone beyond three. Okay, well, I mean, you know, you were. Uh, Lucius Malfoy, so fuck you. But it's not, I'll tell you what I have done, though, but you took my voiceovers. This is a strange thing to say. You were Lex Luthor. Oh, yeah, no, I'd be Lex Luthor, Russell Gould, Superman, Batman. I've been all the DC people, but on a microphone. You were Lex Luthor. Well, and you were brilliant. still awesome. You were brilliant. Thank you. Uh, you Thank know. you. But uh, what I was going to say was... I mean, um, that's your opinion. Yeah, exactly. Me <laughs> you, fuck you know, all. I mean... But, <laughs> I was going to say, one of the things that I've been lucky about in my, you know, uh, an actor's career is so easy. I could look at... I could paint... Picture of tremendous, uh, I wouldn't do it on a podcast because it's not very inspiring, but I could go, oh, woe is me, all the things I missed out on or I haven't got, they've gone badly, they were cancelled. Or I could go, how amazingly lucky I am, I've done all these fabulous things. The truth is, you wake up every morning and you just can decide if you're lucky enough or if not, you use some tools, whether to be grateful. And you can be ungrateful, you can feel, compare yourself to other people you think have better lives, they probably don't. Or you can just appreciate. But I was going to say, one of the things I've been able to do in my career, such as it is, often is choose because I've not been broke. 
And that's a huge, big deal. And one of the reasons that happened is that very early on, I started doing voiceovers. I had a voiceover agent. I was doing commercials. It meant that when I was offered jobs where I thought the part was shit, not small, but bad, I didn't do them. So some of the praise I've got from your mum, for instance, is because I was free enough, not doing other shitty things, to go, that is a brilliant script, and that is a brilliant part. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get offered it. But if you're not able to pick and choose the really good parts and you're not lucky enough to come your way, it doesn't matter how good an actor you are. You, you'll never have a break. Wow. You know, so it's, I'd be, I'd be, I was lucky. I, I was After The Patriot, when I came to work with you, I was offered every one-dimensional bad guy in Hollywood opposite all of the kind of big alpha male guys because I'd just been opposite Mel Gibson. What roles were... Really well-written parts. Right, what it roles really, were you, you, know, were you were, that you rejected? What roles after that that came to you? Any big ones that you rejected after The Patriot? Oh, yeah, you can't say things like that. Yeah, yeah. Other actors did them. I'm a bit dumb. I should have done them for the money and to cement my status. Instead, I went and did a play about the Northern Irish peace process. I played a you know, third lead drag queen. I did a bunch of indie things. I probably should have listened to my agent and gone, just do three or four of these things. And I was going, well, they're done. The, the part of the Patriot was a brilliantly complicated, wonderful guy. And the story and Mel Gibson and Roland gave him status. I came on screen and shot a bunch of kids. I burned a church. But lots of the other villains I was offered were so wafer thin, I would have looked bad in it. And I wouldn't get any other work. I, I, in retrospect, it was dumb. I should have taken jobs, made money, and no one's you know, playing three-dimensional career chess. I could have done some good stuff afterwards. But I was too so proud and picky. I wanted only to do things I thought were great. And, and that's really been consistently the story of most of what I've done. Every now and again, I just do a piece of shit because it's a good check or it's a nice holiday. But mostly, I try and curate for my own ego and pride. If I can't be the most famous or richest person in the world, I can at least look back at the work I've done and gone, that's good stuff and that's interesting and those are interesting parts. And when the credits run, people can have a conversation. Absolutely. I mean, is there one role that you were up for? Just say you were up for it. Not, not offered. You could lie. Mm -hmm. But just the role out there that was one of the ones that you're like, I should have I should have talked to them. Oh, about fuck that. me. Are you kidding me? I could write a book about the things that I didn't do. I, know, I, I either passed on that went on to be global smashers. What? Or nearly the, here's the worst one, oh. which I can't obviously put the name in because someone else did it and whatever. But here's the worst one. I'm um, Brotherhood went to three seasons. They kind of wanted to cancel it after two seasons, really. They gave us a, a truncated third season. Late in the day, they went, you know what? You can do eight episodes because there was a writer's strike. And there right. was a writer's strike and they didn't have any material and developed anything. So they let us limp on for a third season, which is great. It's good work. But I don't think they really want to do any more of it. In the period of time when it wasn't going to happen again, somebody wrote a show that went on to be... Um, one of the most successful and awarded shows in the world. And they wrote it with a picture of me on the cork board as they wrote it. And uh, they were like that. You were the being considered. They had considered. a picture of me up there and they approached me and said, hey, you don't know me, but I'm X. Uh, and I've written this pilot that, you know, I wrote with you in mind, but you weren't available. Congratulations on the third season of Brotherhood. And I went, oh, that's great. Well, what, uh, what did you write? And they went, oh, it's a show about this sort of thing. And I went, oh, good luck with that. Thinking, well, that's never going to be anything. And then it is now... There are cabinets full of awards for it. And that is the one that got away because it it's a great, great show. And it's a great, great part. On the other hand, oh. you have to be honest and go, if I had done it, maybe it wouldn't be successful. Maybe the actor that did it is the reason it became successful. And it wouldn't have been good with me in it. Maybe I would have blown it. I always say, and you could agree with me or not, but it's the perfect storm. You know, like, uh, you know, I've talked about it. You, you, you in the Patriot. If, if, if uh, Heath Ledger wasn't very good, 
or it wasn't shot that great or you're, you know, whatever. There all these things didn't add up and make it this really great movie. Sure. If one thing's missing, that could be enough to break the card down. Oh, yeah. Francis Ford Coppola changed the score of The Godfather like two weeks before it came out. The score is everything in that film. Yeah. It's genius. No, it all just has to happen. You know, it's 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 like when we're doing publicity for Harry Potter, we go around, you know, when we used to go around and do all these junkets everywhere, and people would go, so, so tell me, why do you think the movies are so successful? What is it about the books that really works? And then people are going, you know, all my esteemed fellow cast members are going, well, you know, it's about loyalty, it's about friendships, but so's a million other fucking things. And they've got kids and they've got magic and they've got, who knows? It's the ley lines met, something happened, and if you could repeat it, they would repeat it. So who knows why, when things work, why they work. But I say it always starts with a good script. I've right. never been in anything good that came from a bad script, ever. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you? That, Can uh, you think of something to turn that no, way? From no, usually uh, when I go in, I'm thinking, well, I bet they could do something with this. You know, <laughs> maybe they're, who knows? I mean, there's, um, there, certainly there are movies or scripts that you look at and they're like, that can't be good. And the director's so uh, inventive, creative, technological that all of a sudden becomes this huge thing. And you're like, you know, you read the movie like Cabin in the Woods. I like horror movies. And you're yeah, like, yeah. oh, God, I don't know. This is like. And then you look. No, no, that worked. I love that film. It was so fun. Tell you what I read that I didn't think was that funny, but partly because I was asked to audition for a part that only one eye appeared. It was all prosthetic. Is Galaxy Quest. I remember thinking, well, it's kind of funny. I hadn't at the time been, obviously, in Star Trek or been to conventions or seen any of that stuff, but, but you know, I kind of had some understanding of it. But the aliens weren't even remotely funny on the page. There was nothing about them. It was just, they just spoke like androids. And then I watched the film, which is utter genius from start to finish. Every word of it. Love it. And I thought, wow, I should have. But I don't think I should have seen it. And they must have come up with that in rehearsal. I don't know how they did it. Yeah, I went in there for that like three times for that alien. I come from the, well, you know, with the whole thing. The oh, way yeah, they yeah. did it was genius. I didn't even think of that. I did something else that was kind of corny and probably would have ruined the movie. You're uh, very good at voice. I remember your impressions. You're like... <laughs> Vividly, really? It's still. Well, have you updated them with any new people, or is it still know. the same? Because when they die, you're fucked. Well, I remember. Uh, I remember Keanu when we were working with Keanu. I just remember that's when right. I started to develop a Keanu Reeves impression, and I loved him. I just remember us sitting in the room, and I, we we love him and adore him, and he's the best. But I just yeah, remember he's we, a lovely man. You had to carry Charlize, or we had to carry Charlize into the bathroom. She had cancer, and. We're, yeah. we're sitting in there and Keanu, she's a big let's let's be honest she's a big lass yeah she's she, a bag of bones it was very easy she, yes it's very easy she's very thin uh very lightweight uh but we're sitting there i thought you were in because she's so tall but we're sitting there and then keanu they say action and he comes in he has a scene and just goes sarah and he does this sarah i know doctors and he goes fuck and he hits the wall he's like pass like are you okay keanu you need it you need another uh you need a minute or so he's like no, no, I've got this. Action. Sarah, I know doctors. Fuck. Shit. And he kind of hits the wall again. And then he goes, no, I got this. Kenny, are you sure you? Yeah. Action. Sarah, I know doctors. Yeah, I think that was it. And you, I remember all of us looking at each other like, what? What? <laughs> it was just a funny moment. He was, uh, <laughs> he was a phenomenon. Uh, I, I, I just... He is. 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Let me ask you, you said you don't prepare. You said, you well, you know, when you, I, I know that's a loose term. It's like, you know, prepare. No, you, I don't look at the lines and I don't think about what's going to happen. In the wait scene. a minute. I, mean, wait I know minute. the lines. You know the lines. When you say, how long does it take you to memorize lines? I never learn lines. I never look at them. Like I've, I've, I've read the script. You know, I know roughly what's happening. I don't need to know where it is in the story because you shoot out of sequence always, obviously. So I don't know where have I come from, what's happened to me before, what's happened to me. I get to the set. I have the sides which is the little piece of paper. And I just, I familiarize myself as we're make, doing some choreography or blocking. And, and, uh, and then I, I just sort of know them and reach for them. Because I'm making this shit up when I'm talking to you. So I don't, don't know what I'm going to say next. So I have a very, very loose grasp of the lines. And occasionally I've worked with directors who think, oh, he's taking it lightly or he's being an amateur or something. But it's an approach I've learned from much better, more experienced actors. But I just have a, you know, I, 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 somewhere I know, someone, some level beyond consciousness, I know roughly what the shape of it is. But I want to see what happens. But what happens when you have to know words verbatim, like the Patriot or whatever it is, and they don't want you to improvise, and you, you have to prepare. Oh, I don't improvise. I mean, I, you know, I, do, I respect the writer. But just if they make sense, and it's what you would say next, because you know what you're thinking. If it's good writing. You know, because you, no one ever says what they're thinking. They say what they want. They say things to try and get the effect they want from the person they're talking to. If they make sense, then they come out. And they're natural. And if you keep stumbling over the same point or transitions because you, maybe you haven't got your thoughts right or maybe the, sometimes the words need tweaking but, so um, so you more, just you know, yeah. you have to do the work first to make sure it's not you so you read the script a few times you know it you know this character and you you say when you get on set you'll go over it in the makeup trailer you'll kind of like go through it in blocking but you never Oops. really <laughs> know you're, you guys should just watch the youtube just to see what jason did with the microphone uh, but you, you never really see that my right now I get anxiety thinking about that. Even Think, if it's pages of dialogue and I've never held up a shoot. Now they've never had to wait while I go, wait a second, I haven't got this down. I mean, look, if it's, if it's reams of medical stuff that you've got to learn or in Star Trek, when I was a captain in Star Trek, I would constantly try and give the very scientific gobbledygook away to other people. I go, would it be better if he said that to me? But, um, right. Yeah, I just, I mean, I, I, I can learn things very quickly. I have a lot of ROM and no RAM or the other way or whatever it is. I can, I can get there and look at the stuff in the trailer and I know the words. But what I don't want to do is have a shape for it in my head. I don't want to have a performance before I'm engaged with the other person. It's like, you know, you practice having sex by yourself and then slot someone else in. That's not the way it works. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the best acting teacher I ever had, I was so intrigued when I heard um, uh, Jamie... Jimmy Lynn Siegel on your podcast says she's gone back to acting classes now, you know. Because um, nobody in Britain does that. You, know, you leave drama school, you never do classes again. But the best, the best teacher I ever learned from, uh, this director, never told us a thing to do. Never once suggested anything we should do uh, in our performance. He just kept on asking us what we're trying to change in the other person. And then when he started answering, he go, don't tell me, show me. Uh, and I, I'm, I wonder if you found this to be the same. The best performances I've ever seen on a film set are always off camera. It's always the person off camera. A hundred percent. The best performances I've ever given are off camera. And yeah. it's because 
in life. Now I'm talking, right? And there's a camera pointing at me, but I'm looking at a picture of you because what I'm really trying to do is connect with you, get a reaction from you. I have I have scenarios in my head that play out. One is that you go, this is amazing. You know, that's my optimum scenario. <laughs> the nightmare scenario is I'm looking at you and I see that you're actually texting someone while I'm talking. You know, somewhere between the two is the drama and why I'm still talking, you know? And uh, you can't do that shit by yourself in the trailer. You can only do that with another person and see whether they're alive, you know, whether, whether it's working, whether you're going to get to make them apologize or say, I love you or stop being angry or whatever the scene requires. What so I, yeah, yeah. I have a very loose grasp of the words and then they get there and I see, see what happens. What percent of how many actors do you, do you come across big actors who just really don't give you much off camera? just kind of throw it away and like you know you're kind of on your own and can you deal with that are you good I with don't that? Know. can you go over 100 <laughs> it's not actually it's not that people don't give you a lot of, off camera it's that if you shoot their close-up last if they've been doing wides they might be working themselves into it so when you finally do their close-up someone's close-up whether it's the star of the film or someone who doesn't quite you know isn't, hasn't been around enough doesn't know how this game works they only really, really focus on what's going on for them and they're close up. Or when it gets to the close up, they suddenly go, oh, this is the bit where I better cry. Or I better shout. I better do something interesting in my close up that's spectacular and, you know, uh, is worthy of the ticket price. And you go, <laughs> well, if I'd known you were going to fucking do that, when I shot my reaction to it, you know, when I'm just talking and now I'm doing your close up and now you're sobbing, I would have been talking to a crying person. It's a whole different thing. So good actors, generous actors, theater actors. Uh, um, will very often, right from the beginning, be present. Um, it's a sign of inexperience, I think. Sometimes, you know, uh, schematic selfishness, but mostly inexperience, that people don't really, haven't found the heart of the thing until they do their own close-up. And what they should be doing is finding it always, and finding it off-camera always. And, and I've, I find that most, you know, acting is a very generous thing. It's, it, there's very few people that are entirely selfish about the performance because they know you're only ever as good as the other person in the scene. Yeah. You know, you can't be good in the scene where someone else is not believable. So if you don't give it to them, then they don't give it to you. And then the thing dies. Hey, you know, when you worked, uh, I, I think about like the set of the Patriot, I'm just imagining it. And like, it's, you know, it's like your first real big role. You were in event horizon. You'd done a lot of stuff, but like, I'd, I'd, been, I'd done, I'd done leads in America, uh, in British TV shows. Right. I'd but been Patriot was but my first big role in a big American. Movie, right. Sure, this was yeah. like, Holy shit. Everybody in the world's going to see this. And this is the, the bad guy. You're the Darth Vader of the Patriot. And, you know, it's so you're sitting there yeah. and you're working with Heath Ledger and Mel Gibson. And, you know, are you one of those guys that when you're the bad guy, you have to sit away from everybody. You don't want to get too talky or you could just jump in. Well, some people are like that. I've, I've read a lot about really? that. Or are you sitting around talking to Heath and Mel and got along great? So we, we flew out there early to uh, South Carolina, Mel, Heath and I, uh, and an AD, I think. And for a, feels like a month, but maybe it was a couple of weeks. All we did was ride horses, sword fight, load and fire muskets and throw tomahawks. And every day we go back to where we were staying. We look at each other and go, we're getting fucking paid for this. It was just, we had a fantastic time. And uh, no, it was an incredibly convivial collegiate set. I mean, I've been on those sets where the directors think that in order to create the kind of alpha macho tension that is needed on camera, they need to be screaming and shouting. The set needs to be tense. Roland wasn't like that. He was on top of his craft. Mel's a great actor. You know, uh, he's many things, but he's, he's a great actor, very generous actor. He's a guy that's really giving it off screen. And uh, he's one of those. I remember they did the scene with um, Heath dying in his arms. You know, and it, or injured. I think I remember he was dying. No, I think he was injured and stuff. And he, uh, 
And it's a huge set. I mean, like there's the crane coming down, like five other people coming up the hill on a horse and it ends up in a close-up of him. And he's standing smoking a fag and, and uh, smoking a cigarette for the American listeners. And, um, <laughs> he, uh, and he's telling some hilariously blue off-color story and uh, gag. And then they go ready and oh, he runs over. They go action. He, he sits down, he kneels down and he keens. When he rips his soul out, there's no, oh, I'm going to do some crying noises. Mel goes there. He's got these wells of rage, obviously, and pain that he can access. And he just, the tears are projectiling out of his eyes. And he's holding it. And they go, cut. Ten of the horses went left instead of right. They're going to reset. And he comes over. He finishes the joke. He must have done ten takes like that. And it was never him getting it. He was getting it perfect every time uh, because the horses were wrong or because the camera didn't do it right. He never said, hey, listen, guys, I've done it now. You've got to, that's enough. And, um, it, we were playing chess and Scrabble in between and telling jokes. And, uh, I've always been like that on the set. Sometimes there are people who want to keep themselves from self and go somewhere. I, my best experiences have been not just the joking to distract people, but you're keeping all of you keeping that sense of play so close to the surface that you can laugh, you can cry, you can rage, you can murder. It's all they're all part of a spectrum of they're all they're all connected in a way. They're about being loose and letting things flow through you. So no, I was on the set. I, what I was amazed by on that film is that Roland, the director, and Dean, the producer, and Mel gave me a seat at the top table. If I had an idea, we did it, if they thought it was good. you know. And any time I wanted to change the script or come up with something, I remember we were going to um, was ride. Uh, I was meant to get off my horse and go into the church and tell them all that I knew they'd been collaborators and I was going to burn them. And I said to Roland, hey, you know, I could ride into the church. How about that for disrespect? And I think one of the designer or someone's next to me said, I don't think we made the doors big enough. And Roland went, hold on, what do you mean? I said, well, it's just nasty. If I ride to the church, I tell them that they will, you know, they can save themselves if they tell me where the guy is. And then once they tell me, I go, thank you. And I ride out and burn it. And he goes, yeah, sure, I like it. And then the, someone else came over and said, mate, I don't think the doors are big enough. He says, sure. <laughs> so we shoot it later, make the doors bigger. And I ended up riding the church. They gave me a complete wow. unknown, the license to come up with stuff that I thought was fun. If they thought it was fun, we did it too. And, and that's, that's fun. that made you feel good, huh? But also, well, don't the best creative work comes when you empower everyone. I watched Chris Columbus, that lovely, lovely man and wonderful director. I watched him on Harry Potter. Ask eleven-year-olds and twelve-year-olds who never acted before. What do they think? They have any good ideas for the scene? What do they think? And, and you know, I saw the director of um, I did a series called The OA on Netflix. And Zal, this genius director who I adore, he, he had a number of people who never acted before. You know, uh, uh, Ian, who's in, and other people. And he'd ask them what they wanted. He'd say, you know the character better than me. What do you think? It's not that there's nobody in charge. Far from it. It's the very opposite. But if you empower everybody, then you can take the best of their ideas. And, and that was what the set of The Patriot was like. 100%. Mel was always encouraging me. You know, he's, he wanted me to direct the stunt stuff. He just he directed Braveheart. He was like, the stunt guys came and showed us the fight. And he goes, no, 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 Jace. You take over, tell them. And I'm like, these people have been doing this job for longer than I've been alive. He went, tell them what we what the fight needs to be. So it's just, anybody listening, the point is not me, me telling showbiz stories. If you're doing anything creative, empower everyone. No one knows better than anybody else. I always say that's absolutely true. You know, whatever you're doing, I, I defer to other people, real people who know what they're doing. Hey, you know, when you're doing a scene and you're, I look at the camera guy and I go, hey, John, is that funny? He's like, not, <laughs> not really. I'm like, well, it's not funny. It's not working. <laughs> if John's not laughing, he's our audience. John fucking knows. I How don't do we- know. I, I would take odds with you that. I think there's something about comedy. <laughs> if it's funny on the set, 
it probably isn't funny at home. That's true. That's that's true. That could very much you're happen. You're getting the crew laughing. It's just like you get the crew applauding at a big performance. It's a big performance, and it's not going to work on camera. The crew shouldn't see it. The camera sees your secrets. The crew shouldn't see your secrets, I think. That's, you know, that's happened where you're like, everybody's laughing. It's just fun. It's It's, it's gone both ways, but... I, th- I think you just have to know when something's funny and trust it and not try to overdo yeah, it. Yeah. And that could be very difficult unless you're with the, you know, you have the right director. Got, the thing is people try to be funny. You've got funny bones. Funny people are funny and people <laughs> are unfunny. It doesn't, I don't care who wrote that fucking script. They're just never going to get a laugh. They just don't get it. They just don't get the rhythm of it. Hey, this is called shit talking with Jason Isaacs. This is rapid fire. Go for it. You can be as fast as you want. If you want to talk about it, you can. Uh, my patrons, my lovely patrons, Emily asks, what's your favorite line or insult your character on Harry Potter said? Oh, well, I remember being in Hagrid's house and I, it's because I like the vowel. You know, I came up with this tortuous voice for Lucy Malfoy. It was meant to make you hate him before you understood a word. And I said, I was in his house and I went, you call this a heist. I just remember that. <laughs> Say it again. I like it. You call this a heist. Maisha, you've had a long and very diverse career. Is there any actor that you absolutely loved, loved working with and why? The one that just comes right off the tip of your tongue. Oh, God. Well, Lenny James ended up being one of my best friends. So I loved working. I did a TV series. But in the movies, I loved working with Richard Harris because he's he's a god. And I'd been to drama school with his son, Jared. And when the days when Richard came to watch us in the plays were like, three sets of life run stays. He like, it was fucking terrifying. This Oscar winner was coming to watch us. And then I got to do a scene with him before he died, which I love. I just started watching the crown. I hadn't seen him five episodes in Jared Harris. Jared's fantastic. Oh man. Jared's a fantastic actor. He was a fantastic actor at drama school. He was what they call a dangerous actor. People think dangerous actors are people that, you know, swing the sword too close to your face. No, it's people who make bold choices and could fall flat on their ass, but could be genius. He was always brave with his choices. That's that's difficult. Most people want to play it safe, right? Yeah, you, you want to be, you want to get the next job. <laughs> Matty Wags, uh, you're so good at playing a villain and making the audience in, instantly hate you. The Patriot, Soldier, Harry Potter. My question is, what draws you to the role of the villain? And you you mentioned this; it has to be well written and not just kind of paper thin. But what character? What it. character traits make uh, for a good villain? Just believability. You know, Lucius Malfoy is just a racist. He's a scared old. Racist with, you know, uh, ridiculous blonde hair. Does that remind you of anyone? And those people, uh, they look in the mirror. They think they're right. If you play a character who's just doing shit to make the audience boo, they won't even notice you. You know, white supremacists think they're right. He's trying to make Hogwarts great again. This is a guy who thinks the world was better when people like me ruled things, and he can see it's moving. So I believe him. The guy in the Patriots trying to win the war. He's scared of going home because his, his aristocratic family is broke. You've got, there's got to be a reason why you're doing things. Did you love working with Tom Felton? I still love Tom Felton. I talk to him all the time. I know. We I do see. stuff online all the time. We might do, actually, we might do a podcast together. Uh, if we I could never pin him down. We're always in different countries, different times. Uh, yeah, he, he was a gorgeous kid. So lovely. I felt terrible bullying him on screen. Um, and he's turned into a, a lovely young man. Yeah. Matthew J., do you prefer playing the villain or the hero? Good guy role, which one you like? Uh, I like the bits that are so well written that I get the credit for a writer who's created a three-dimensional part. Good answer. Leanne P., you've played a variety of characters over the years. Which one do you identify with the most? Mm. Probably, I did Angels in America, the first productions on stage. And I was I went in to talk to them about playing Pryor, who is the drag queen who has AIDS. And I said, uh, you know, he has a very whingy, neurotic Jewish boyfriend. I never get to play that. And it's so much closer to who I am. 
time. Maybe Lewis in Angels is closer than any of the parts I've played. Carly T, was Armageddon as much fun to make as it was to watch? And what's your favorite no. memory from that show? I, no. I, I heard it was a pain Fuck in the ass. Fuck no. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you, the only reason why is I was offered one of the astronauts and I couldn't do it because I was working. So they very kindly came back and said, why don't you play Professor Quincy? I'm like, okay, great. And, they, and my agent goes, you should take it because it's eight days work over six months, but they'll pay for you to be in Los Angeles. We can look for other work. They'll actually pay for you to be in a hotel. I'm like, wow, oh, that's awesome. I go to my first day's work. Michael's very nice. He's very flattering about how I do the one day that I have a lot of lines. And he goes, do we have you for the run of the picture? I said, well, I'm, I mean, I'm here for six months, but I'm only doing eight days. No, no, bullshit. I'm going to put you in every day. We'll give you like a clipboard. We'll put you next to Billy Bob. We'll throw you a line occasionally. <laughs> I just thought I almost vomited on the spot because I was there for six months, mostly as an extra every day. Uh, and, you know, every two months out of line. And that wasn't that much fun. Janelle B., huge fan of the OA. There it is. As it is such an original show, please tell me if it really, please tell me it really wasn't canceled and the finale is just a plot to set up season three. It's I, such I emailed you and said, I don't story. want to be inside of me. I don't want this to be therapy. Uh, <laughs> I said, I'll come and show you. This what, was that joke. question the first therapeutic? I, I could weep the OA. I loved it. I think it's so staggeringly original and beautiful oh. and human. And I've been doing this job for a long time. I've done a lot of, told a lot of great stories with great people. I've never come across anything like the OA. And I, I don't know if I was... You know, other people watched it. Some people watched it. Went, eh. Most people I know who watched it, A, watched all eight episodes of season one, then all eight episodes in one go because they couldn't stop and were profoundly affected by it in ways that they can't even explain. Uh, I thought it was, you know, I said the ley lines met with Harry Potter, the ley lines met with the OA, with what Zell and Brick came up with. It was something magic. They had all five seasons mapped out. Never heard of that before, really in, in great detail. Wow. And, uh, I don't know. I was I was blown away. And by this stage, I don't really get blown away by many things. I like, oh, that's nice. I'll do that. Oh, that's interesting. I, I just felt like I'd arrived fresh off the boat from another planet because I felt like they re reinvented storytelling. If you haven't seen it, watch both Pl seasons. Please watch both well. seasons. And of course, Brotherhood. My mother's going to make me watch. I'm going to watch. Not that she has to make me watch, but I'm going to watch it. Taste. She is, but you, in children and TV shows. But you don't usually get, like you said, connected to something like that. Where emotionally, did you feel? Did you cry, or did you? Were you really upset? Were you hurt that that, that when we were canceled? Yeah. I was devastated. Aww. Yeah, devastated. By, by the way, I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't the first choice for the part. They cast someone else. They shot with him and replaced him. You know, I, I lucked into that, and uh, I couldn't believe my good fortune. It was one of those things that, uh, like I said, it was the doing of it, being around people that creative, that generous. Yeah. That supportive, that free in their thinking. But you know about. I don't know if you're like this, but most things I'm on, like I'm trying to help my goddaughter write a script at the moment, or my, you know, if somebody comes up with stuff, I'm filtering it through the thousands of hours of dreck that I have made and seen and thought about, and I go, "Hey, why don't you?" And I come up with some idea based on shit I've seen before. I felt like they were untouched by all of the, you know, the poison of millions of hours of procedural TV that I I've watched and, and processed. I felt like they meant it, you and I. I just being on set with them, telling this story so originally, and the atmosphere in which we told it uh, was enough for me. You know, it turns out it was a giant cult hit. Can you be a giant cult? I don't know. Sure. Uh, and I was crushed. I didn't get to. But the agents were thrilled. Not that it was cancelled because they liked it, but like you're not lead. You know, you've you've got out of it what you're going to get out of it. I remember hearing that from a representative going, "You don't understand why I do this job. I don't, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to build something on a ladder or you know get get the." the checks to go up or my quote to go up. I'm in this job because I love exploring human beings with talented people. And this, it's never been better than this. Um, so yeah, I was wow. crushed, crushed when it was over. Oh, I'm but sorry. That, it just means I keep that child alive. I keep that over in, 
look at me, I'm, you know, my age, I'm, I talk like a, uh, you know, an over-sugared eight-year-old because I keep <laughs> myself enthusiastic. You are. Last question, Kelly asked, what was it working with, what was it wor- like working with the late, great Alan Reitman? I was stupidly for years scared shitless of him, intimidated by him, just from the way he spoke, you know. Um, he's actually the loveliest, most generous man, very fiercely committed to political causes, you know, center-left and left-wing causes. When he found someone he wanted to champion or help, he really helped financially and with his time. Uh, he was amazing. But uh, I never really, um, I, I stayed intimidated by him. And I never really got out of, got the benefit out of him that I could have done because it was an incredibly friendly set. The best moment on Harry Potter for me, best by far, was right at the end. We're shooting the final big battle at Hogwarts. So everybody's in, all the actors are in. And, uh, and it rains. And so we're there every day, but it's raining, and so we don't shoot. And it being a big budget movie, they don't seem to care, which any other film, they'd be pulling their hair out, you know. But So instead of going back to everyone's trailer, if it's an American movie, everyone would go back to their trailers and stuff. We all huddled in this tent, the sound of deafening rain. They had a very stale tea urn, like you know, the, your spoon would stand up in your cup of tea. And we sat there around these electric heaters, and Julie Walters told stories about her pig farm. And everybody, Alan told you know, Jim Broadbent was there and uh, Imelda wasn't there, but uh, Gambon was there. So many people were there. All the kids were there. Um, and just told stories. You know, everyone was telling us, was hanging out like we were doing a touring theatre, you know, dinner theatre production or something. And every day I'd get there and I'd go, please let it be raining today. Please oh. let us not shoot this thing. And just to sit in the company of these great, great actors and theatrical royalty and the kind of, I don't know if maybe uh, you've noticed this before, but every set, every film, every television show uh, exists on this undercurrent, this bed of terror and anxiety that nobody's going to watch. You know, everyone's going to lose their money. The show's going to be cancelled, whatever it is. And on the Harry Potters, by the time we got, you know, halfway through it, we go, these are the most popular films in the world. We're telling great stories, great scripts in an, you know, in a great way. And it just fills you with just confidence to, 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 to be bold and to dare to do things, uh, and with a great bunch of people. So, uh, yeah, that was my what was it like working with Alan Rickman, like it was working with everyone. I, I pinched myself myself every day that I saw my name on a list on the call sheet with these people that I, frankly, worshipped. That is awesome, and and I and I could picture it. I pictured the tent. I pictured everybody kind of in close proximity. I pictured someone just yelling this and oh yeah, and then then kind of sharing stories and just it feels like camp. You know, well, that's so, so the public think of actors. When we went to Duke premiere the last movie, they had to have like a dozen cinemas, and it was just the biggest thing that ever happened. And Trafalgar Square and Leicester Square were full of tens of thousands of people. And you know, I think sometimes when I don't know if it happens to you, but my friends go, Oh, my daughter wants to be an actress, or my son wants to be an actor. We talk to them mm-hmm. it's because they've seen stuff like that on TV. But that's the life of an actor. The stuff that's lovely is us in a tent, shivering with the rain outside sipping tea, telling stories as if we were all starting out as students. The fact that four of them have Oscars, you know, like there's no status in acting. There can't be status. There shouldn't be status in a group of players. Minstrels used to get kicked out or hung or raped or whatever it was. You know, we're we're vagabonds. We should be. And, uh, And that's what that felt like to me. This has been an absolute joy. Honestly, I wish you all the best. I hope what? I get to come to America. What's yeah? Sometime. You have a place to stay. What's going on? Any? Uh, by the way, what's your handle? What's your Instagram and all that? Oh, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Jason's Folly. It's mostly been politics for a long time. I hope to God it doesn't have to be for a long time to come. 
Uh, I try and do self-promotion. I'm tempted to do easy gags all the time. It doesn't live alongside Trump's hideous <laughs> racism and uh, uh, intent to destroy the world, but hopefully we'll never have to mention him again. So at Jason's following on Instagram, which I post once every six months when my daughter reminds me I'm the real Jason Isaacs. Nice. And what's anything coming up? I know it's, it's uh, you know, quarantine. Yeah, yeah the, film's, well, the film's coming out, but I mean, are they coming out? I don't know. There's, there's, one, there's a film out now called Skyfire. There's a film coming out next week on Amazon, I think. Oh, no, in January called Dr. Bird's Advice for Sad Poets, which is a brilliant uh, indie. But there's Fantastic. a film in which I have a much bigger part. I'm incredibly excited about that I, uh, oh, I can't say. I think about it. I was going to say, but no, it's called Mass. And it is the enticing scenario of four people sitting at a table talking. Um, two of them are the parents of a kid who died in a school shooting. Oof. And the other two are the parents of the shooter. And uh, it's some years have gone by and they've not been able to get over it, the kids of the, the parents of the victim. And their therapist suggests they meet the parents of the shooter to try and make him human. And it's one of the most brilliant pieces of writing and acting masterclasses, not from me, but from the other people I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it was just, it was staggering watching them. I don't know how it works as a film. I've been given amazing feedback, but you always are. I, that's the one I can't wait to see that come out of the new year. Oh, and fuck it. You know what? There's a list of things. I don't know. There's a I, bunch I, of shit. I want to see. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm going to watch The Death of Stalin. I want to see that. Death of Stalin. Uh, there's only Armando Iannucci in the world that could make a satire about, you know, one of the world's most genocidal maniacs and make it both funny and respectful of the dead. Ryan it's, just it's went like this. My engineer just went, yeah, on that one. Yeah, yeah. Dude, I love you and uh, keep in touch. All my best with the kids and Emma and and just life Good and luck. be healthy and safe. And thank, thanks for doing this. What's dating during a pandemic like? Oh, God. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss uh, after. Okay. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks. Right, thanks friend. for allowing me to be inside of you, Jace. Great to see you. Great to see you. Too. Are we done? Hey, thanks for listening. Uh, you know, I appreciate you guys tuning in and hopefully you enjoy Jason Isaacs and you'll stick around for next week's episode and support the podcast. And um, I just want to say, I really appreciate that. It was a really fun interview talking to my old buddy. I remember on sweet November, us going like golfing and um, hanging around San Francisco uh, and then being transvestites in a movie. And it was uh, it was a treat. It was a, it, I definitely have fond memories of that working with Keanu Reeves and Charlize Theron. And it was a lot of fun, Ryan. That was a good episode. Good editing, my friend. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, he's a private guy, and yet I think he was open and um, very forthcoming. Is that the right word? Yeah. Yeah, I think he was. That's a word. I think it was a word. Mm -hmm. I took word power in, in high school. I remember ameliorate to become better. I remember exuberant, overwhelming with joy. Mm -hmm. I remember colloquialism. Not sure what that one meant. I think it was like frat is a colloquialism. Yeah, it's a for fraternity. Right. It's a it's slang. It's, it's a sl fancy word for slang. Yeah, colloquialism. Can I tell you Can my we, favorite word? Yeah. Defenestrate. Defenestrate. Does that mean take away? It means to throw out of a window. <laughs> throw out of a window. Okay, defenestrate. I was I was close. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in a way, right? Right. <laughs> It, to be, do away with yeah it's, it's just <laughs> i defenestrated my father in smallville lex Luthor defenestrated his father out of the fucking window that's right i am the villain of the story um <laughs> hey guys this has been a real treat uh thank you for supporting the band sunspin go to sunspin.com for all your merch go to inside of you online store for all your uh merch for um the podcast patreon my lovable awesome patrons hi out there this is just for you 
This goes out to the awesome patrons who make this show uh, very possible. So I just want to say I love you and all that stuff. You know, I'm a weirdo right now. Um, go to patreon.com slash inside of you. And if you also have any questions, you could also go to hello at inside of you podcast for any information. What are the handles for uh, inside of you podcast at inside of you pod on Twitter at inside of you podcast on Instagram and Facebook. That's correct. And they're right here. So you could see them. So it's a beautiful thing. All right, here are the wonderful patrons that uh, if you want to, again, if you want to join Patreon, go to patreon.com slash inside of you. I'll send you a message, but uh, these are the folks that really support the show, and I thank them from the bottom of my heart. Also, thanks to Westwood One, Kelly, Agnes, Teresa, Katrin, um, and my good friend Ryan and Bryce. I can't wait to hug you, Ryan. It's going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to so many hugs. Yeah, we're going to hug it out. Here are the patrons. Music, please. Oh, there it is right there. Let's put, let's put a little sunspin music on here, instrumental, while we're doing it. Okay. Oh, yeah. You feel that? Nancy D, Mary B, Leah S, Trisha F, Sarah V, Little Lisa, Yukiko, Jill E, Brian H, Lauren G, Nico P, this is Sexy Voice, Robin S, Jerry W, Robert I, Jason W, Stephen J, Kristen K, Amelia O, Allison L, Jess J, Lucas M, Raj. C. Joshua. D. Emily S. Yes, CJ. P. Samantha. B. No, and M. You were that was a roll right there, buddy. I got it wrong last week too. Jennifer N. Jackie P. Stacy L. Carly H. Jen S. Jamal F. Janelle B. By the way, I do that. I have to change a page. I have to lick my finger. I have to. My fingers won't change a fucking page. And people <laughs> say they hate those people who do that. Sometimes I do that. Does it come with age? <sighs> I don't fucking know, dude. It feels like a dad thing to do. Uh, I've been a dad for 20 years then. <laughs> Carrie B. Tabitha 272, not to be confused with. Tabitha 273. Ashley Ryan, Kimberly E., Mike E., Marissa. And. Yes, Eldon Supremo, Dan, Jack S., Ramira, Beth B., Santiago M., Sarah F., Chad W., Leanne. P. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're good, buddy. Ray. A. Yes, Maya. P. Maisha. That's a hard one. I don't see. Mm. Aisha. Maddie. Kendrick. F. Ashley. E. Shannon. D. Matt. W. Belinda. N. Kevin. V. James. R. Chris. H. Osborne. Osborne. H. Osborne. Amy. C. Dave. H. Samantha. S. Spider-Man. Chase. Sheila. G. Ray. A. H. Oh, that one's Ray H. Alyssa C, Tabitha T, Misha H, Tom N, Henry S, Katie F. They're all here. You can see their names and you can hear them. And uh, Liliana A, Michelle K, Hannah B, Michael S, Talia M, Luke H, John S, Andrew T, Claire M, Liz J, Laura L, Chad L, Rochelle. Chad L, Rochelle. Mm. Nathan E, Brandel, Taylor K, Neil A, uh, Marlon, Meg K, Janelle P, Dan N, Jennifer N, almost done here, Wayne M, Ojedia, Ojeda, Lorraine G, Olga. Oh, my Olga C. Olga ordered a bunch of shirts oh. uh, with my face on it for her school. Olga, you're, you rock. Corey M. Um, this has been a real treat. Ryan, what are we going to do this week that is going to make us feel better? What, name one thing you're going to do for yourself this week. Uh, I'm going to actually pick up my goddamn guitar. Good, because I think you're a fabulous guitar player and yeah. a singer. Thank you. I do. You're very, very talented in many ways. And I think I don't want you to forget the things you love and the passions you have because you're tied up with like lots of work. Yep. 
you know mm-hmm. i don't want you to stop working because <laughs> then we'd be f-u-c-k'd oh that'd be great but uh i want you to take care of yourself i'm, I'm gonna try and take care of myself i'm gonna um i'm gonna try and play some golf that's good uh, i'm gonna try you know i've been writing a lot but that's i gotta you know i want to I'm, I'm writing a new song i'm writing a new song called movie star and I uh, played it for Rob, and he loved it. And then Rob is uh, bringing his brilliance to it. So we'll be getting that. Um, anyway, have a fabulous week, guys. We love you from the Hollywood Hills. The lifestyles of the, the mildly famous. Li- <laughs> lifestyles of the mildly famous and not so rich. <laughs> uh, I am Michael Rosenbaum. I've been Ryan Teus. Yeah, I'm Ryan Teus. And uh, have a superb week. Do something for yourself. Love yourself. Give yourself a break. We'll be back next week. Please join us. Please subscribe. We love you. Give a wave. Thanks for allowing me to be inside of each and every one of you guys. Thanks. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.